I'm Stuart Sheldon. My name's Ron Rothberg. 30 years ago, I was on Wall Street. I was the youngest vice president at my fancy company, but that's not what I wanted to do. After spending nearly 25 years in media, I knew things were changing, both in the industry and inside me. Swan Dive shares the powerful stories of those who had the clarity and backbone to make a major life pivot to their vision. I took a Swan Dive. I have been an artist ever since, and it's the best choice I ever made. Getting closer to who you really are. That's Swan Dive. Taylor Keene is many things. A teacher, a writer, a community builder, a Native American thought leader. But at his core, Taylor is a storyteller with deep connections to his ancestors. Human identity is the most important thing that we have, right, as human beings. And it's everything to us. Uh, Without it, we are lost and we will uh, fabricate our own story to fill in those gaps. It's a part of human nature. With it, it uh, hopefully enriches our foundation as a human being and how we make uh, a standing in our life. You have to follow your own passions, and I guess that's my swan dive. That passion led to a project called Sacred Seed, a way to hold on to what is sacred while planning a harvest for the next generation. Welcome to an all-new episode of Swan Dive. From the Peacock and Park Studios in Jacksonville, Florida, and in Costa Rica at the Fancy Nasty Studios, welcome to another edition of Swan Dive. I'm Ron Rothberg, and in Costa Rica, it's my dear friend from a whole lifetime of friendship, Stuart Sheldon. Hello, Stu. Hey, Ronnie. I'm so excited today. Uh, Our guest said something very interesting, very profound. He, He went to college on the East Coast from nebraska and oklahoma and he said if there's anything i learned from going to school out east it was to use your mind to the best of your abilities to dream Hmm. and today is the 60th anniversary of mlk's i have a dream speech a speech which i am proud to say my father listened to live on the radio and and cried and uh, a speech of course that underlies much of what you and i are about in terms of uh our our commitment to, to leaving the world better than we found it. And I know you're hurting today, Ronnie, yeah. and uh, how you doing? The dream is a little bit of a nightmare right now. And it's 60 years hence, those prophetic words, those beautiful words. And, and here we are over the weekend in Jacksonville, Florida, where three lies were cut short because somebody did not like their color. And um, we're hurting. It hurts, and it's it's another one of those things where your city is trending for all the wrong reasons, and it goes into our history as a country that we continue to deny uh, that that we have this problem. We don't see that we have a problem. We don't see that we have a problem with race. We don't see that we have a problem with guns. We just continue to um, deflect it, and it hurts, and people are hurting, and the other side of it is people are coming together, and I hope that um, that Dr. Martin Luther King's dream will come true one day, but it's not coming true right now, man, and uh, well, I guess we just got to live through it. Well, let me just say this, man. It's about action, and it's about the content of our character, and our guest today, Taylor Keene, is the embodiment of that dream. This is a gentleman of the first order, someone who is living a principled life, a purposeful life. And we're going to get into that right now. Taylor, who is a friend of mine, has an astonishing resume, Golden Gloves boxer, Dartmouth undergrad, two masters from Harvard. 
He's a businessman. He's an indigenous leader. He's a strategy consultant and a full-time instructor in corporate strategy and entrepreneurship at Creighton University. But at his core, Taylor is a storyteller. And the story he tells are those of his people. Harvard University did a magnificent feature on Taylor last December titled Singing to the Corn, where they wrote, quote, corn thrives when sung to and spoken to, Hmm. something Taylor Keene does in the language of his mother's Omaha tribe, where he is known as Bison, Maine. Keene is also an active member of the Cherokee Nation, his father's people, where his tribal name is Blackberry. He grew up between Omaha and the Cherokee Reservation in northeastern Oklahoma, where he was a football player and a top student, not a plant whisperer. (laughs) Now, this incredible polymath has seen a great deal and has gained much wisdom, and I am honored to call him my friend. I could not be more delighted to welcome you to Swan Dive, Taylor. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Well, first, if, if I may humbly... Uh, ask. I want to talk terminology. I am admittedly poorly educated in your culture, uh, but I'm eager to learn, and I have learned in researching and preparing for this talk. So in terms of terminology, is it Indian? Is it Native American? Is it First Peoples? Is there a term that you prefer? It's an interesting topic. I think just having the opportunity to engage around this conversation is important. Uh, You will hear a myriad of different interpretations from uh, different indigenous peoples. That's what I tend to focus on. You'll hear the term uh, First Peoples out of uh, Canada. And as a matter of fact, that's part of the title of my soon-to-be-published book, uh, Rediscovering Turtle Island, a First Peoples account of sacred geography in America. Hmm. And I'm fine with either. Uh, the term Indian uh, of course, is attributed to Christopher Columbus, who thought he was finding a, a pathway to the to the east. And uh, but you know, there's been different interpretations over the years. Um, arguably, one of the first languages that interacted with indigenous peoples was Spanish. And one interpretation I heard that was always thought provoking was that it may have been a reference to. Uh, people of God, Indios, hmm. and may, and perhaps that's what they called themselves. Uh, indigenous peoples, uh, the most correct term is to usually call them by the name of what they call themselves as a people, which uh, can be challenging. And like you said, Stu, it's, it's incumbent upon individuals to do a little bit of research and understand. So um, when I speak... Um, to the honor of my ancestors, I refer to uh, the Umaha people. That means the people that move against the current in this land that we call Nibadaska, which means flat water. It's our word for the Platte River here. Hmm. And um, in relation to some of our brother and sister tribes, uh, over the last thousand years, we separated in our migrations uh, from one large tribe into smaller tribes, and we became the people that move against the current. You have the downstream people, you have the children of the middle waters, you have the wind people, and uh, the um, sacred head people uh, that point south. And all these terminologies go back within 
a thousand years and talk about our own migration stories. You mentioned storytelling, and that's everything to indigenous peoples, uh, especially creation stories and stories of migration and diaspora. Who told mm. you the stories? You know, I grew up around a lot of the stories. Um, I mean, I would have to think probably came from uh, originally from my uh, mother's mother, my maternal grandmother. But I was always hungry for stories and cosmology, and I constantly asked questions, um, which is the reason what ultimately led to the writing of the book that has uh, transformed my life. People say such things, um, toughest thing I ever did, best thing I ever did, and it really allowed me to ex explore cosmology as a topic and uh, going back and uh, learning more from elders, asking more questions. Um, part of the process for the book was to really uh, scour the ethnog ethnographic records and the anthropological records and to see what stories are out there. And there's been a real resurgence in anthropology recently where uh, many anthropologists and even archaeologists are embracing some of these older creation stories, which they previously within the uh, academy had dismissed as folklore. <laughs> and so we have uh, stories of creation, the beginning before the beginning, and stories of migration. And so all of those have always resonated with me. What is the de definition of cosmology? To me, it means uh, where we've come from in the cosmos. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, at the center of the cosmology for both of my tribes and on the Cherokee side, uh, Jalagi, Ani uh, Gaduwagi, means the people of Katua. And it had to do with one of our mother towns. And um, as I've described what a mother town is to uh, friends in the past, um, it's a, a place. And within the Omas, too, we have things like this where we have a sacred circle, a ceremony where we enter and we have to forgive everyone else within that, but most importantly, ourselves. Mm -hmm. And um, some have made analogies to Yom Kippur and uh, similar types of forgiveness of self and those around you. But uh, those mother towns and all these histories, uh, that's where these stories were being shared. And in essence, uh, one that is common to many um, indigenous peoples of North America uh, has to do with the journey of the souls. And it uh, speaks about our journey from our heaven, from the Seven Sisters constellation. Some call it Pleiades. Mm-hmm. And the version of the story that uh, was told to me, probably more broadly to all those tribes that I mentioned, uh, anthropologists will refer to us as the Degiha Sioux, but it has to do with our uh, dialect of the language and our language family of all those tribes, Osage and Quapaw and Omaha and Ponca and Kanza or Kaw. And uh, this this story is a, is a version of... Uh, one of those probably when we were a larger tribe, so bits and pieces are similar. But in the in the beginning, our souls were like stars in the sky, thought but no form. And eventually one of these souls, these stars, had a question 
for itself. Who am I? And this question burned inside of the star of, of the young soul. And so the star went to its mother, uh, the moon, and said, Mother, who am I? And the mother said, Oh, my child, I was afraid that you were going to ask this question. You need to share this question and thought with your father. So the star of the soul went to his father, the sun, and said, Father, who am I? And his father immediately chastised the young star and said, My child, uh, you need to be very, very careful with that question, for that is the most important question hmm. we have as souls. And so from this ex existential question, uh, at least a, tra a, a tradition among the Omaha tribe, is that our souls leave that Seven Sisters constellation and journey through the dark rift of the Milky Way, uh, also known as the journey of the souls, pathway of the dead, some say. And our souls come through there and then are guided by the morning star, which is Venus, uh, to here. And when the first souls migrated, they came in fours. And depending on the tribe, there's four different animals. But they landed on the watery planet, and had to uh, find uh, safety and solace. And depending on the tribe, uh, that animal could be an otter, it could be a crawdad. I'm referring to my two tribes. But eventually the earth is brought up and given to Turtle. And uh, Turtle was the one who had the original question, who am I? And felt so bad that Turtle sacrificed himself and put the earth on its back. And that's where Turtle Island came from. Mm -hmm. So our stories say um, that heartbeat of the turtle is what is symbolic of our drums at all of our ceremonies. As long as we drum, it's going to keep the heartbeat of Mother Earth alive. So that's part of our, our role. To me, cosmology is where we come from in the stars. And we all have our own conceptions of heaven and the afterlife, whatever mm -hmm. that means to everyone. Indeed. Yeah. There, there is a monument to your fifth great grandfather, chief big elk installed in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, he lived circa 1770 to 1848. Does the fact that you are directly descended from a chief and a, and a highly noble chief at that mean that you are in line to be a chief? How does that work? Well, uh, thanks for bringing that up. It's been a lesser known topic. Um, I was very fortunate to, uh, as a descendant, to work with the uh, artist Benjamin Victor, who did an incredible job. He previously did one for the famous Ponca chief, uh, Chief Standing Bear. And I've uh, also had the honor to uh, voice for him in historical interpretation, and I hope to do my fifth great-grandfather soon. Ompa hmm. Tonga, um, Big Elk. Uh, Big Elk, the uh, elder, there was a younger one as well. And uh, he was one of the true last hereditary chiefs. And uh, he picked his successor out of that line next, and then the changes of the U.S. government and formerly the French and the British on uh, how our leaders were elected changed. And so uh, while it's a great honor, it uh, leaves me no path to uh, chiefdom. 
But here. does does it give you a sense of an answer to that question? Who am I? Is that one it of the does. pieces? It does. Um, human identity is the most important thing that we have, right, as human beings. And it's everything to us. Uh, without it, we are lost and we will uh, fabricate our own story to fill in those gaps. It's a part of human nature. With it, it... Uh, hopefully enriches our foundation as a human being and how we make uh, a standing in our life, what's important. If there's um, one thing that uh, I've learned in life is uh, you have to follow your own passions, and I guess that's my swan dive. Hmm. Um, At a certain point, uh, I've been uh, teaching at my university, Creighton University, for uh, going on 15 years now, and it was my mother who encouraged me to become a teacher, and uh, I think my first sophomoric um, teenage boy response was, Mom, I didn't go to Harvard Business School to be a teacher. Well, (laughs) apparently I did, so, (laughs) and um, along the way, I challenged some of my students, and I do teach corporate strategy and entrepreneurship, and at a certain point, I was challenging them for a personal strategy, and I defined it as, what's the one thing you can do uh, that no one else in the world can do? So, of course, one of my students, and this was in a graduate course, and said, Professor Keen, what's the one thing that you can do better than any, anybody else in the world? And it's a relative question. You know, for uh, a young person, that would seem uh, difficult to answer. For adults, not much easier, but it forced me to become a bit more contemplative and embrace notions of discernment. And eventually I realized that my passion and my hobby around culture and history could be something much, much more. And so somewhere a little over five years ago, I began that journey of uh, deciding to write a book on all that. And uh, it's also uh, impacted by uh, tribal prophecy as well. We had a guest on, a gentleman named Josue Rivas, a member of the Mexica and the Otomi peoples. And he's an artist and a photographer who takes intimate portraits of indigenous persons. And about his images, he says, quote, the time will come when you reveal yourself to yourself in these images. You see yourself and you're okay with it. And that can potentially shift their perceptions of themselves. It, it's a challenging thing to be an indigenous person on the earth right now, especially in North America. Do you relate to this idea of helping your people and yourself shift your, their perceptions of themselves to re- reveal yourself to yourself? Is that a fair statement? It is a fair statement. Uh, a lot of uh, this journey for me of finding my true self and revealing it to the rest of the world, of course, begins with uh, acknowledging it amongst um, myself and my family first and telling them that I was wanting to embark on this journey, going to my elders within my clan, within the tribe, and asking for permission to find our sacred red corn again and to bring it back or to find these old stories. Uh, That's a part of our custom to ask permission and to feed the people, whether that's literal or figuratively, and uh, ask about all these old stories. But uh, our story really um, has become important more recently uh, with the advent 
of uh, what is known as the seventh generation prophecy. And it's uh, really a prophecy that comes out of our Suian relatives, the Dakota, and has to do, um, broadly speaking, with uh, a, a tough amount of time that in indigenous peoples went through. Some would tie it to uh, the United States uh, colonizing indigenous peoples and other European nations. Some would uh, say symbolically it, uh, it was embodied in something like the breaking of the sacred hoop of the uh, Suian Confederacy. And uh, it was prophesied then that we as indigenous people would suffer for six generations. And by almost any socioeconomic status, oh, how we have suffered. Mm. And um, with the coming uh, of the markings, uh, in this case, four success, successive uh, albino bison, then that would mark the age of the seventh generation. The first one was born in 2001, and the fourth one was born in 2007. And I was working on a scholarly paper with a Dakota legal scholar as well as a spiritualist, and she's the one who clarified what it what it meant. And so for all those children born after uh, that time frame, 2007, they are the seventh generation. So for us as indigenous peoples, they will be the ones uh, that will lead our nations to stand tall again in a cultural and hopefully economic renaissance, which I believe is occurring now. And that it's incumbent upon people like myself of the sixth generation to learn those stories and to share them. So, yes, that very much mirrors. And and not to be forgotten is um, the non-Indigenous uh, seventh generation, as was uh, told to me, that equally as important, uh, those non-Indigenous seventh generation, uh, they're, they're the ones who are finally going to be ready for uh, Indigenous wisdom. I think it has something to do with sustainability and protecting Mother Earth. Do you believe that your identity is somehow prophesized in that you're telling the stories from uh, of the seventh generation? It seems to be, well, as you're telling that, that that is part of who you are, that you're inheriting that. I think so. And it's um, at some point it became uh, a question for me of, you know, the purpose in my life. Do I accept this? prophecy as it were and the way that it transpired in in my life and um i would say whenever it first began to happen i had zero interest in any of these things or um probably not that much interest in necessarily even giving back to the world or i hadn't figured it out yet and so when this prophecy came about it knocked on the door at the right time and i chose to walk through it hmm. and uh eventually uh one of the challenges that I heard along the way was uh, uh, you might want to learn your own stories as well as you've been educated by the greater Western world. And I took that challenge to heart as well. And so I've um, been, you know, em embracing all things cosmology and history and different perspectives and understanding the past so that, you know, we as indigenous people can know where we're going in the future. You made a really interesting point about the non-Indigenous seventh generation. I have a 15-year-old. I have a 13-year-old. 
And by virtue of this podcast, we, we, we've talked to a lot of people sort of about leaning into their passion. And one of the themes that I hear both by witnessing my children and their peers and in these conversations in general is don't worry about the kids today. They got this. They're in charge. They're in touch with nature. They're in touch with, with inclusivity. They're in touch with letting people just, you know, love is love. Getting back to your swan dive, sort of, um, you, you have a project that you started in 2014 called The Sacred Seed, sacredseed.org. Yep. Um, and it's been written about extensively. It will have links to it on your, on your webpage on Swan Dive, and, and we don't need to get into exactly what it is just yet. One of the things that I want to talk to you about, about first is this idea of sacredness. Um, what is sacred? Uh, I live in deep nature because there's a sacred solitude in my daily environment. Your journey as you alluded to, took you from the intensity of the Ivy Leagues and to the frantic world of dot-coms and, and the business world to the stresses of political engagement, yet you've some, somehow found your way to exist in a state of what appears to be a sacred appreciation. You're connected to nature, to your culture, to silence, to abundance. Um, you're married. You have connection to love, the sacred, sacred joining of two people. Um, are you living a sacred life? Do you feel that your life is sacred? I'd like to think so. I know um, one of the uh, core value phrases that come out of the uh, Diné people, some would call them Navajo, uh, is a nice blessing to share with uh, someone. May you walk in beauty. And that's always struck me. And somewhere in life, I decided to embrace all those things that were important to me. Uh, the founding of Sacred Seed was truly just one of those things that sort of fell into my lap. Um, I love to say the word serendipity because it's it happens so rarely in life, but that's how it, it came to me. And um, growing and protecting um, the plant nations has become probably the most poetic and beautiful thing that I've ever done. And um, the plants speak for themselves. But as you mentioned, the amount of attention that the project has gotten, uh, I never would have thought would come to be. But uh, I'm incredibly thankful for the gift. And the more and more that I can find that I can think about things and um, share what I've learned about indigenous peoples and our perspective on the world with others, uh, I do feel like I, I work in a sacred space. When I teach, that is the goal, and I tell all of my students that. Uh, one of our, our cousin tribes, the Osage, they have uh, a name for uh, one of their prayer ceremonies that uh, goes all night and sometimes in, into the following day. And it's called Kikonza, and it means the place where we teach one another. So I try mm. to embrace that in my life at all times. Um, and it's definitely changed my perspective. And I'm uh, grateful that you would share some of those thoughts about uh, peace and silence and abundance, mm. because that is what I seek at this 
juncture in my life and i'm blessed to be able to think about those things and thankful for my wife who uh embraces my journey uh of self-discovery and growth as well which includes healing and mental health and taking care of myself and uh my my mental health my physical health my spiritual health uh, absolutely yeah that's that's the first priority is wellness you know top to bottom what have you learned from the sacred seeds that they're teachers uh for sure um when i began that journey it really began with one of my lifelong mentors dr deward walker the chair emeritus of anthropology at cu boulder and um certainly one of the people that encouraged me to to teach and uh now over 30 years ago, I met Dewart as a young man, and he's constantly, uh, as uh, one of the good guys in anthropology, a lot of them um, were not perhaps as objective as they could be with their perspectives on studying indigenous peoples, meaning they never involved us. So how could it be correct? Um, but Dewart was not a collector or not egotistical and thought that he knew more about our people as a scientist than we did. And um, Dewart taught me the notions of sacred geography, which has uh, incredibly changed my world and helped me understand uh, that Earth Mother is um, the center of all our religion and our relationship to the stars and to this planet as a mother are very, very important. And uh, along the way in life, uh, Dewart's kicked me in the pants several times and caused me to wake up a little bit. And one time, uh, now approaching probably um, 16, 17 years ago, he called me up one day, and he loves to do this, called me up out of the blue. And this is how Dewart talks. He wouldn't argue with you. (laughs) Young man, what are you doing to protect your corn? (laughs) And I said, corn? Do what, Dewart? Your tribal corn, what he was alluding to was some of the big uh, ag seed companies like Monsanto and Syngenta were um, doing work in the country of India and were displacing uh, indigenous farming methods with their onerous GMO practices. And um, Deward thought that the tribes would be next, and that's where the Seed was planted for sacred seed, and some years later, I was serving on the National Council of the Cherokee Nation and was visiting with our head of uh, agriculture and ethnobotany, really, um, Pat Gwynn, and I brought up this topic about what was happening with corn, and it was just the start of the Cherokee Nation seed-saving program, and uh I got to watch it grow from its inception, and that's where I got some of my first seeds. And uh, now, nine years later, the the journey has included many, many seeds and much more study of uh, all things uh, ecology and botanical and understanding through an indigenous lens uh, what a lot of these plant medicines are and uh, how they can make us more healthy. And not only did you embrace this idea of preserving your history, your heritage through the collecting and growing and spreading of these seeds, but you transformed your own backyard. Apparently you, uh, you had a regular backyard with grass in it. (laughs) And now that was, that, that was then tell us about your backyard right now. 
Well, that was a couple of houses ago. And again, we're going on our uh, 10th year coming up here. So it, it, the the gardens move along with me and grow and change in other places. But uh, at that point, I was uh, living in uh, Midtown Omaha, just older neighborhood. My house was built in the 19-teens and and uh, everybody was growing grass just like a lot of Americans do. And I started this project and I checked with my neighbors and and I don't think they really realized what we were going to be doing. And uh, another um, guest on your podcast, um, my best friend, Andy Pay, I'm sure many call him their best friend. But uh, when I told him what I was trying to do with corn and all this stuff, and he said, Taylor Keene, what do you know about growing stuff? And I said, not much. Hmm. He said, you better get some help out there. And I said, all right. So I ended up running into uh, the folks from Omaha Permaculture, and they helped me transform my backyard into an oasis for sure. And uh, the first year, anyone who's doing um, first-time digging into the earth in your yard, you'll release a bunch of, bunch of nitrogen and you'll think you're an incredible grower. <clears throat> That's what happened to me the first year, but uh, there's pictures on sacredseed.org of what it looked like. Pictures from the second floor of, uh, of my old house and you'll see the uh, telephone lines at 12 feet and sunflowers reaching up to 16 feet and curling over those, love it. those lines and, um, there was more wildlife in my backyard than anyone could ever imagine. And soon newspapers came and uh, television stations came and uh, videos. And that was the start of Sacred Seed. But it was uh, it was incredible to see what uh, can happen in your backyard if you uh, are open to the joys of plant nations. There's something yeah. wondrous about the sunflower too. We had an amazing crop this year. You had said that the sunflower does something with the 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 soil. Is there a what what is the purpose of the sunflower in your garden? Sure. The uh three sisters methodology probably uh originally comes from uh the Mayan peoples and or their ancestors and maybe other tribes, but it's been so long probably somewhere around 10,000 years ago, corn was adapted out of teosinte, which was a grass, and uh, changed its whole role in nature and became this abundant crop. Um, and they pioneered the Three Sisters methodology. So corn takes a lot of nitrogen out of the soil. Uh, the sister of beans puts them back. And especially if you get the pole climbers, at least in my part of the heartland, and the squash stays on the ground. Uh, it likes a lot of water. And so many of the tribes would make uh, mounds, sometimes with alluvial soil for nutrients. And the corn and the beans would go in the mound and the squash would go in the lower line areas and serve as a cover crop. But uh, they all have a bunch of mysteries that I've been learning over the past nine years of what they do. Uh, true <coughs> indigenous heirloom type crops are are certainly different. Um, our corn um, is such an amazing plant. Within the plant world, uh, the most complex DNA is from corn. And in the animal world, which we like to think that we're not, but we are, we have the most complex DNA of the animal nations. And I think there that's why humans and corn seem to uh, admire one another <laughs> and need, need one another. And we certainly, uh, uh, by the help of the human hand, helped... Uh, alter it 
through natural selection uh, over the course of 10,000 10, years to make it something amazing. Uh, the squash oftentimes uh, on the real indigenous heirloom varieties will keep a lot of predators away. Uh, I've had my own experiences with raccoons. They don't like the little hairs on the on the plant. And uh, if you're grabbing a real indigenous heirloom uh, squash vine or anything, you'll feel those things. The sunflower, back to your question, Ron, uh, in general will take out a lot of heavy metals out of the soil. But uh, here in the heartland, uh, somewhere between June or July and August, we'll get a serious, serious wind and often will take 10 to 20 percent of any corn crop. So historically, as I did all my research, I found that uh, the tribes in this area, including my mother's tribe, the Omaha, they would have a fourth sister and they would plant the sunflowers um, around the perimeter uh, some of the tribes will plant them very quite tight, so it almost looks like um, river cane or bamboo, as you might see out on the West Coast, hmm. uh, really tightly together, and it serves as a windbreak. Hmm. So the four sisters complement one another, uh, and it's that agricultural lifeway which has dominated the landscapes here in the Americas historically for thousands and thousands of years. And I still think that those practices need to be studied by everyone today as we think about soil health and sustainability of the land. Uh, A lot of things that we refer to as regenerative agriculture um, probably come from indigenous peoples because we've been on this land and connected to it for so long. Hmm. You you said on a a wonderful podcast by the name of Mountain and Prairie uh, in in reference to what you described, the garden and the sort of wondrous properties of the various sisters and growing together. You said these there's all these wonderful, magical things that are still a part of this world if you believe in it and if you got the heart to try to go back and find it again. And to me, that's worth more than any amount of money or anything else to be a part of. It's magical. Um, you also went on to talk about this notion of things. There's, there's certain things being beyond commerce, mm. uh, and sacred. That, yeah. There's the sacred word again. Yeah. Sacred things that are beyond commerce. We're not. And, and I, I'm so deeply moved and touched by this notion of yours that I share. It's not about making money. It's not about the consumerist, capitalist, you know, go, go, go. Tell us more about this idea of the sacred being beyond commerce and how that relates to your life and what you're teaching and learning. The core value that I learned along these lines came from uh, the early days of sacred seed. And, um, you know, I teach corporate strategy and entrepreneurship and graduate of Harvard Business School. and dot comer and all those things. So when I started the project, uh, my university allowed me to teach a, a practicum seminar on it and had a bunch of students in there. So we um, put together a business plan, looking at different models, doing all the right competitive intelligence, looked at uh, seed banks that raised millions of dollars from the USDA to um local seed banks and everything else. And as a part of the class, we did a literature review, but I also made it experiential for the students and they helped me harvest. They helped me 
uh, shell the corn, dry it all, uh, take care of the seeds, get them in a way that can be saved for later on. Uh, we made uh, out gathered hickory and oak and made wood ash light to turn into hominy and all these different things. And I would just follow in my heart. But uh, as a part of the course, we also did a literature review. And uh, one of the works that I assigned to one of the students uh, was Robin Wall Kemmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. And uh, it was out of that notion because um, shamefully I was thinking about commerce and how we could do this. Could I get it into the restaurants? And uh, in retrospect, probably had some ego within that. And that's mm. not, not what I wanted to do. And uh, one of the portions of the book that I found so beautiful, and uh, I will have to paraphrase because uh, Dr. Kimmer um, does it so much more eloquently in her work. And if you've not read Braiding Sweetgrass, I would encourage all your readers to do so. And at a certain point, she had uh, visited, I believe, the markets of Peru, which is another one of the origin places for uh, lots of indigenous um, plant nations come out of there. And uh, she had visited one of these markets and then subsequently had a dream. And in her dream, she was going to one of these markets to get her uh, vegetables and spices and everything for the day to, to cook for the rest of the week. And in her dream, she would go up with money to try to pay for these things. And everyone said, no, your money's no good here. And so she had to figure out how to trade sacred things. And the students were so struck by that, as well as the way that we were taking care of the crops. I don't use uh, any chemicals, and we did everything by hand. And we began to refer to the work as the capital W, meaning we had to do it with our hearts and our hands. And uh, eventually, one of the students said, I don't, I don't think money's the right thing for this project. And hmm. I said, you know what, you're right. And so that's how it got the name of Sacred Seed because some things are above commerce and this is one of those. And so I've re rejected uh, monetizing anything around the seeds and uh, embrace our notions of sacred gifting and reciprocity, which is uh, an inherent trait amongst all indigenous peoples. So uh, we're honorable, I will share them with people and um, ask, you know, seed ambassadors to help us over the years. We've had all sorts of people from all around who have grown for us and put them in different climates and zones and shared them back or shared them with others. And so it's been a wonderful gift. I wouldn't change anything. So, so uh, what is the metric of success? Are you measuring any of that? Can you measure the sacred? I know uh, some people have uh, found it difficult to see what that is. And, uh, you know, to me, um, this kind of came from uh, another similar story. Whenever I graduated from Harvard, uh, I came back home for uh, an honoring ceremony. And at the heart of the ceremony, uh, the individual who's imparting the knowledge and praying for you, giving the blessing. In this case, it was uh, uh, my late uh, grandfather, Valentine Parker, Jr., and a very wise elder. And uh, I remember his words to this day. And I remember he said, grandson, you're, you're uh, from my own blood because we're from the same family. 
And he said, education was very important in your family. I know from your grandmother, she really uh, wanted you all to do that. And uh, Wakanda, God, doesn't want us to waste our minds. And he said, from what I'm told, those schools that you attended, they're some of the best ones, and that's good. He chastised me a little bit and said, but you also need to get your education in our ways, too. And I just kind of put my head down and acknowledge that he was right. But he went on further to say, and he says, uh, because you need to be careful because uh, in our world here, you can make mistakes and we'll correct you out in that greater world. They won't. Hmm. And you need to be careful because some of them worship money and God doesn't want us to do that. And I was silenced after graduating from business school, you know, (laughs) and he said, uh, for in the end, when it comes our time to go home and our temporal bodies have ceased, no one's going to remember how much money you made. No one's going to remember what titles you had. All that they're going to remember is that you touch their lives and their hearts. And Mm so, Ron, that's the metric that I gauge upon you know. and uh, it's 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 hard to i know at certain points after uh, conversations and talks i've uh, some have criticized because it's hard for them to grasp that but there's always a call to arms at the end of my talks and sacred seed and usually what i challenge people wherever you're from if you think that there were not indigenous peoples that lived on those lands you're wrong because we were everywhere and have been here for tens of thousands of years. And that number keeps going back further with more uh, recent uh, discoveries. Um, but the but the challenge and the call to arms was wherever you're from, find those people, invite them with an open heart, and you will learn from them. Yeah. It Ask is them a, about their land. It is about learning. My father was a college professor in education, and he said one of the things he said about his life and his, his career was, he said, I never wanted to get into business to count the beans. And that's a never interested of me. He said, at the end of the day, I asked myself, I asked of my students, did you learn something today? And that was the metric that he brought through in his career that was incredibly noble. And I absolute respect for, for that as well, that currency. Wisdom and beauty is what I seek to share. Taylor, we use the word tribe often these days, and we're, Ron and I are both Jewish, you know, members of the tribe, quote unquote. Um, as a corporate strategist, you teach that a tribe is the most resilient organization in existence because it incorporates everyone together in everything. And if you want to destroy it, you need to kill everybody or, you know, you don't destroy it. Yeah, you don't destroy, <laughs> you don't destroy it if you don't kill everyone. So tell us more about your sense of tribe and also um the difference between a clan and a tribe. Help 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 me understand a little bit more about what that the nuance there. Sure. And um these conversations with uh, Jewish friends have gone on for a long time. Uh my dear friend uh Jake Tapper, a colleague and friend from Dartmouth College. We used to have all these, and I remember at one at one point I used to make the joke because uh, for whatever reason I got put in in the uh, Cohen suite of dorms at Dartmouth, which was the Jewish dorms, and there was Native Americans and Jewish uh, students in there, and a lot of uh, 
other people would say, what's the deal between the Indians and the Jews? And I, I don't know. My answer was always, well, a tribe or the tribe, what's the difference? <laughs> and Jake Tapper used to say, I wonder which one really came first. And I was always, hmm. Yeah. So these, yeah. these notions, uh, I think that the uh, tribal structure is probably how all humans lived uh, blissfully at some point when life seemed to be more simple, uh, when survival is uh, inherent upon uh, relying on everyone else. Um, I love to look deeper into the uh, unity histories of indigenous peoples, how complex the clan systems are and how beautiful they are and what they do to protect the the genetic medicine of, of tribes, et cetera. And um, for example, um, most tribes, indigenous tribes have seven clans. Some, some tribal groups like the uh, Greater Sioux Confederacy, they don't have um, clans. They have uh, um, communities of families that are equally as large. But uh, most of the Tribes have a number of clans, and that differs. And uh, ultimately, it comes down to what's important for their survival. Um, with my mother's tribe, the Omaha, um, we have um, a sacred circle, the Huthaga, where we come together as a people once a year. And we have sky clans on one side. On the north side, on the south side, are the earthen clans. And the earthen clans are responsible. I'm from the earthen bison clan. So uh, whenever we eat uh, as a tribe communally, uh, we have to wait till everyone is served till we eat together. And then they'll tell us in our language, it's okay. Wadatai gaho means go ahead and eat, but you have to wait until then. We drink water from the same bucket together to start the ceremony. And... Um, for example, my clan were responsible for the equal allocation of bison meat. Uh, as colonization um, took over, that became pork and beef, but we're getting back to our bison now. Hmm. And all the clans have some purpose like that. Some of the Sky clans have more of, uh, I would say, an existential or spiritual uh, responsibility. And they were so complex but those tribal mechanisms, I, yeah, I, I've said it differently over the years, but it's the most economically resilient um, unit of humans out there because uh, spoken from the perspective of people who have um, uh, experienced diasporas and calamities on levels that it's hard for other humans to understand, you would have to kill all of this to, to kill the tribe. And unless you killed all of us, you didn't kill it, and we will survive, and we shall remain. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's that unity, but it's a core values um, exercise as well. I know within the the Omaha tribe, we have a number of translation of of phrases. Ugikawabe, um, um, help one another, be kind to one another. Uh, that's our tenet. In that sacred circle in our ceremonies, my grandmother used to tell me, when you go into that sacred huthaga and that circle, uh, have a kind word to say to everyone. Go up and shake their hand. Even your worst enemy, she would say, go up and shake their hand because they are a human being and someone uh, depends upon them and needs their love. We need that now.
your, so much. Your, your ancestor himself, Big Elk, said there's a beautiful quote on a monument to him that I referenced earlier where he's speaking quite solemnly about the sort of coming flood of what I suspect to be the white settlers yes. and the loss of the, the animals, uh, the bison. Uh, and he, he paints a rather, a rather sad and, and frightening picture, but he goes on to say, to your point, speak kindly to one another, do what you can to help each other, even in the troubles with the coming tide. And uh, there's such a gentle generosity and wisdom in that. And the the words of an old man at this point, just saying to his future generations, exactly what you are saying. You are testament to his wisdom by repeating his message, and and isn't that beautiful? Um, and we're still and, here. Yeah. And you are here, and you are strong, and you are you are his uh, sacred uh, seed. In some respects, <laughs> you, there right? you go, Ronnie. I mean, it is. It's it, well that metaphor of the sacred seeds just uh, is so deep on so many different levels. And you have been telling stories from the seeds that were planted within you, and now your your sacred purpose is to continue that. It's just a beautiful journey of uh, that that defines you and your identity right now. Oh, I appreciate that, guys. That uh, I needed to hear that today, and ongoing in this journey because it's hard sometimes uh, met with obstacles and people who don't get it or don't like it or whatever else. So I appreciate the kind words. I can only imagine. I can only imagine, you know, you and I met over 20 years ago at Andy pay recent swan dive guest, a master winemaker. And I mentioned this because the context of our friendship was and, 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 and has been since then one of just sort of playful dudes drinking wine and beers in the forest with our, you know, with our buddies. And, uh, then you officiated at Andy's wedding, um, so memorably, so magnificently on a hilltop in the beautiful Western Sonoma sky. And I got to see you in a new light as a spiritual leader, as a keeper of indigenous tradition. And in preparing for this conversation, I've recognized the gravity the gravity of the journey that you're on and and just how hard it is, how heavy the lift is. And yet you are heart based, you are open and the gentleness that, that within you is really the, what defines the, and the defiance on, you know, you're not going down, they're not going (laughs) to kill you. And, um, and so it's, it's, it's been a real delight for me and honor to get to learn uh, more about you, your people, and uh, and to hear from you firsthand some of the wisdom and some of the story underlying your journey and and your people's journey. So I I really do appreciate that deeply. You've taught me things that I didn't know in just just a short period of time that I'm embarrassed that I didn't know, but that I know now. You've got a book coming out that I know you're toiling on, and I know it's a very big part of your life these days. Tell us a little bit about that because we certainly want to get a hold of that when it's available. Sure. It was really in response to uh, the challenge as a member of the sixth generation to know my stories and why they're important to the seventh generation, not just for indigenous people, but for uh, everyone around the world, I hope. That's what it's become for me. And the title of the work is Rediscovering Turtle Island, a First People's Account of Sacred Geography in America. And uh, 
It encompasses everything from a chapter I call Cosmogenesis, which is where we come from in the stars and that story that I shared Mm -hmm. uh, a long time ago. uh, We come from the stars and um, goes from there into some philosophy of uh, thinking red, living red, and uh, understanding the uh, long history of indigenous peoples and the civilization uh, that we have built over uh, a thousand years ago and beyond. And it goes a lot into um, the mound builder or the Mississippian cultures with uh, which uh, both my lineages come from and focuses in on sacred geography uh, that pertains to my tribes, including uh, a very fascinating uh Indigenous urban experiment, uh, which for lack of a better term is called Cahokia, which is outside of uh, modern day St. Louis on uh, several rivers, the Mississippi, the Missouri and the Ohio River. And it was a trading empire uh, beginning somewhere around uh, 1000 common era and surviving for three to four hundred years before whatever happened to it caused the tribes to move on elsewhere in their in their journey and just uh, exploring further the antiquity of the land and uh, our relationship to the stars and the complex science and uh, engineering and uh, sacred algebra and sacred geometry that went into the building of these and our relationship to the stars so very very excited for the work to come out and to share more and when's mm. that going to be coming out uh, about? Uh, spring, summer of 2024 from Inner Traditions Press. I'll let you guys know when, when a copy is available. Maybe we can have a, another talk about it. I'd love to. Yeah. In the meantime, um, may you walk in beauty. Thank you. <laughs> and you too. Yes, yes indeed. Everyone, sacredseed.org. Everything you need to know there about this beautiful human being and what he's doing. Uh, and uh, we're going to have uh, some video uh, as well as some links, some books that uh, Taylor referenced on the website. Uh, Taylor Keene, it's a pleasure, my friend. I love you, and I appreciate you. You too, you. Stu. I appreciate you. Thank you for taking time with us and for sharing your beautiful swan dive. We sure appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Swan Dive. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Also, we are building a new season of Swan Dive. So if you or you know someone who has experienced a Swan Dive in their life, please hit us up and contact us through our website, www.swandive.us.